Hello again, and a warm welcome to this special series of the Hive podcast, featuring the interviews from my new book, Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the ideas transforming the world of business, brands, and beyond. For more information and resources on today's episode, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash the Hive podcast. And for more information around the book, please visit businessunusualthebook.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I speak with John Featherby, the founder of Shawmount, a business that helps organizations to become more purposeful, adaptable, human, and regenerative. As one of the UK's founding B Corps and awarded Best for the World Changemaker by B Lab, Shawmount models how businesses can achieve the highest standards of verified social and environmental performance, public transparency, and legal accountability to balance profit and purpose. And as a certified member of the B Corp movement, they are accelerating a global cultural shift to redefine success in business and build a more inclusive and sustainable economy. With an MA from Cass Business School and having grown up around dialogues of change, with his parents having funded the first social impact bond, these influences contributed towards founding Shawmount, an endeavour seeking to put flourishing back at the centre of the workplace. As well as sitting on the investment committee for the UK's leading impact investment funds, John also holds various ambassador, investment committee and board roles. John, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to be talking with you. It's a pleasure. So I'm going to open by asking what you think is happening in the global human psyche right now as we talk in the end of December in 2020? Wow, what a question. <laughs> yeah, I could run in a number of different directions there. I think there probably will be some quite serious repercussions emotionally from this year. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some kind of, I don't know if this even exists, but sort of collective PTSD mm-hmm. um, from a year like this. I mean, there are people like me who are fortunate enough to have space in the house and outside the house, and I live in open countryside so psychologically it hasn't actually and I work from home prior to the year anyway so Mm. psychologically for me it hasn't been a huge shift but I can imagine for an awful lot of people that's been uh, you know an enormous weight to carry so um, but I also think two things I think the first of which is we need to have a much better conversation about death And I mean that in the kind of physical sense, but I also mean that in the sense that I think we're in the process of something new being given birth to. And one of the things we don't talk about much in the sort of corporate change arena is this idea that for the new thing to begin, something has to die for that to turn Mm. up. There's a letting go uh, or a processing of the old, which we're not very good at. I think in part because socially in the West, we're not very good at this bigger discussion about you know the end of life so that Mm. turns into that we're not very good at that you know that life is a constant dying and rebirth so i think i think going forward you know for this to have happened at the end of a decade and the start of a new one that actually that's probably subconsciously what is going on too but we haven't really figured it out yet 
there's something has been something is gone and something is turning up and we're not quite sure what that is but we do need to sort of even if we don't like what we were leaving behind we still have to process the fact that it's gone because it was safe so so, so to speak because it was known so yeah mm. that's a sort of that's a very big heavy answer to your question but i think that's for me, that's what's partly going on anyway. That's an incredibly rich and unexpected answer, which I certainly wasn't anticipating, but I'm really, really glad that you shared. I've, I've been reading recently about um, the cyclical nature of life and death within life, something which many of us have become very disconnected from, and how our inability to recognise these cycles as complete in and of themselves, to kind of split them out and to ignore one half, is to deny ourselves the full potential of the creative aspect. And I wonder how this also connects especially this year where there's been so much introspection, with our ability to use rites of passage and ritual to mark the ending of a specific passage or a specific era or whatever it might be, or a cycle, in order to make way for the new. Is this something which speaks to your experience with business or with the way that we need to change how we want to be in the world professionally and also, I guess, societally? Yeah, 100%. I think the secular West has... The pendulum swung too far and we threw off too many things thinking, oh, we don't need that anymore or that's not relevant anymore. But I think we've, in the decade just passed, realized, oh, maybe we did. And on the rites of passage front, I have four children, hmm. the eldest of which is 13. And I had a conversation with him at the beginning of the year before all this happened to say that I know this this isn't a very sort of common thing to happen in our society, but I want to co-create with you a rite of passage from childhood to young adulthood. Mm. So we we started thinking about what would that look like in you know Hertfordshire, just north of London, <laughs> for a thirteen-year-old in twenty twenty um, to go through something that was like akin to a rite of passage, and you know what should it include, and and we haven't done nearly as much of it as I'd hoped to have done by this time because I wanted to sort of spread it over the year and. For me, a lot of it involves engaging with other people, which hasn't really been possible. Mm. Um, so on a personal level, 100% agree. And in a professional level, definitely, I think, you know, rhythms of life, this building stuff around the seasons, which is a sort of mm. coming and going, isn't it? And rites of passage in the workplace. For me, the stuff I'm often really most interested in is is a thing that people talk about over lunch by mm. themselves but don't talk about in the boardroom. And you can start to tell when that is becoming an issue that is eventually going to find its way into the corporate psyche. And it's easy to forget that it was literally only two or three years ago that we were kind of being laughed out of corporate meeting rooms, been talking about things like purpose and meaningful work and that mm. kind of stuff. Now everybody talks about it like it's always been there and they were always interested, but it's total nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> This topic was woo-woo and you know out there and it's not what serious business people did and then it becomes mainstream because enough people talk about it and it creates a sort of social permission and then it becomes socially accepted then it becomes socially expected hmm. for me i'm interested in what is that thing now and i think what we're talking about at the moment is one of them that is too fringe for the average corporate or the big four consulting firms to run around talking about but in three to five years, they'll all be jumping up and down to it saying, we were always thinking about this, we just, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So, yeah, I, I 100% agree. And I think it's linked into the business conversation around purpose because I don't think you could have a conversation about purpose and this stuff not to rear its head. Mm. 
human beings have just tried to explore this for thousands of years and you know you can't pick and choose which parts of what does it mean to be human hmm. and and think the other stuff isn't going to come bundled with it mm. so i think that's what's coming down the road over the next decade that's very thought provoking i think also the kind of bleeding through perhaps of our fundamental needs which are expressed in our private life so the rites of passage that you described wanting to create with your son, which I actually find that very, very moving. Oh, actually, and there's a book that that may be interesting to you. Um, It's by Sandra Ingerman, The Book of Ceremony. And it's more to do with shamanic rites of passage, but it's it's to do with ceremony and ritual, and it has some lovely ideas within it. And something else that I was reading recently that I've about halfway through, it's this book by Byung-Chul Han, who's a Korean-born professor of philosophy and cultural studies who teaches in Berlin at the University of the Arts. And it's called The Disappearance of Rituals, and it's outrageously good. And I have a feeling that you might like it, and it's connected with uh, more of a philosophical idea about how we approach existence, but also it taps into this idea of consumerism. And I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this. He talks about how in the absence of ritual, of the symbolic, of experiences which we craft to punctuate and hold time and to mark the passage of time, that being ritual that we end up in this undifferentiated, indistinctive flow of ceaseless time, which can be very disorienting, which encourages us to seek an emotional sense of satiety through endless consumption. And of course, now with so much of consumption happening in a digital form, what we're consuming is not necessarily the item that's in front of us, the virtual image, but the emotion attached to the item. So the kick that we get out of getting extra likes or whatever it might be. And how the antidote to that is maybe finding ways to work individually and as businesses to create experiences that are lasting, that are enduring, that have symbolic value. I, what, what do you think about that, just as a kind of general idea? I absolutely love it. Yeah, no, I, I'm definitely going to read those. I, I completely agree. I think I think people's annual rhythm has become the sales cycle. Yeah. You know, <laughs> there's like Boxing Day sales and Black Friday and summer sales, which is pretty shocking. And I think consumerism it has its flaws, and well, there'll always be a marketplace. And mm. so, I think with all these things, you have to recognise that there is always something useful and meaningful in these things. And you know, we create things to sell, and we depend on one another's skills. And the marketplace allows that relational flow to occur. And I think that's you know healthy and positive because it puts us in a position where we all need one another. We aren't, mm. you know, we can't be independent. I think in the context of rhythm. Yeah, we've lost way, way too much of that. We eat whatever we like all year round. It's not connected to the seasons. The cycle, really, apart from the year end, the business cycle is just the same the whole year round for the most part. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more. And I think how you layer those in through individual acts of ritual, um, which can be as simple as a morning routine, up to what is the whole organization up to and how do we, you know, how do we synergize ourselves with what is going on with society mm. is a really interesting topic and i think it's going to become more and more popular the other thing of course with consumerism is it's where we sort our meaning you know what do we own what do we mm. buy how often do we buy it and you know, that's fundamentally a lie of sorts you know that that is where we should be catching our worth if we're going to unpick consumerism people aren't going to put down the question of where do I find my meaning? They're just going to try and attach it to something else. So we have a job to think about, well, what is that other thing? Mm. So on that note of of meaning and how that connects with work, and before we dive into your fascinating work with Shawmount, I'd love to ask you about your involvement with the B Corp movement, both as a leader and a founding business. Can you tell us what a B Corp is and what moved you to become involved? Yeah, so as a company, you have to be a for-profit business to be a B Corp. 
And so you're a company that has committed itself to this idea of interdependence and the need and the want to be more socially and environmentally responsible than the norm to try and push this idea that the system needs changing mm. and we can join a community that is doing its best to do that. And to become one effectively requires two component parts, one of which is to make a change to your legal articles that says you'll be accountable to all your stakeholders, not just the shareholder. So we're not reducing the role of the shareholder, we're just raising the importance of the other issues to have more harmony. And then the second of which is to get through an assessment. But it's not an exam, it's more like an online resource with a long list of positive ideas. And once you've done enough of them, you cross a threshold. And at that point, you know, you can label yourself you can have the kite mark, so to speak, and join the community. So that's what a B Corp is. And there's now three and a half thousand of us globally. I think we turn over about $90 billion as a collective. Wow. And everything from multinationals down to startups and everything in between. It's an awful lot of fun, but it's really taken off, particularly in the UK, over the last, last probably 18, 24 months. It's an exciting time to be involved. Mm. It's been obviously a huge amount of change. And even prior to the pandemic, there was... Uh, some interesting conversation being had around the move away from yeah. CSR towards ESG, the move towards really walking the talk, towards taking responsibility. What were some of the key trends that you were observing in the time before the pandemic? And how have those been impacted by the crisis? Well, purpose became, it moved from being a fairly fringe idea to something that was suddenly becoming much more mainstream. Mm. So that was the first thing. When we say trends, I mean, the thing is, I would say a lot of this stuff is on an exponential curve rather than a linear one. So they're already there. They're just gaining momentum at, at a slightly different pace. And we could see that B Corp potentially had legs. And this, this idea of how you bring the responsible business bit, and, you know, in quotation marks, from the margin of the business to something that's done by a small team or the writing of a check at the end of the year to being part of the strategic DNA of the business is something that's certainly evolved over the last 10 years. What drives something to the point at which it takes off, you know, on this exponential curve is hard to pinpoint. But I think there's just an awful lot of planets aligned over the last 24 months that made people feel like, okay, I've had enough. I've had enough of the status quo. Mm. There's obviously a problem and we need to do something about it. And it's a mixture of changing workforce and political forces and climate change become more apparent, you know, and eventually have a movement on your hands. Mm. Yeah, it seems like there are quite a few movements that are interconnected, which are suddenly now being seen as they are, which is yeah. an ecosystem which which reveals a much deeper issue of disconnect, maybe. Yeah. On that note, um, I'm really interested to ask you more about your work as the founder of Shawmount, which is an award-winning consulting firm that helps organisations to be more human and purposeful and adaptable. And from your perspective in, in this role and in the light of all the challenges that we're now facing, what do you feel are the most important qualities that make for a resilient business and a resilient brand? Humility would be right at the top. Businesses are effectively just a group of people and they do end up with a mind of their own. This is certainly true. And, you know, you could have a conversation, for example, about should we be a B Corp with all the individuals involved? And they might tell you over a coffee, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do it, I'd love to do it, but stick them in the boardroom, the collective think takes over. And mm. so there is there is certainly a difference between the individual and institutional, but the ability to stop and reflect and think 
we haven't got this nailed, where might be going wrong, um, what do we need to change, what should we be willing to let go of, and where can I learn, importantly, is, is absolutely key. And, and a lot of this change stuff really comes down to a question of the individual and their relationship with their heart and soul. It's not really a question of data. We could give boards data till the cows come home. <laughs> Fundamentally, if they haven't engaged with the issue at a deeper level, they won't do it. And that could be a whole load of different reasons. So I think being humble enough to listen to the marginal voices, to the quiet voice of yourself that's saying you need to be doing something differently, I think has to be at the top. Hmm. And then a willingness to sort of pursue adventure. <laughs> We're not selling safety here. We're not saying become a B Corp or pursue this new way of doing business and everything will be okay. It's more a question of we can't stay where we are and we have to leave. Mm. Are you coming with us? We don't know what's downriver, but we know we can't stay here. And we're going to have to innovate the bejesus out of everything on the way down. <laughs> so, and that, that's really what it is. And I think going back to the, what we talked about at the beginning, this sort of life and death thing, you know, letting go of something that's, that's run its course and being willing to step into a world where stuff isn't safe all the time. It's not sterile. It's like we've got to use this idea that everything just works mm. and it always has been like that. And that, you know, your job is always secure, et cetera, et cetera. That, that is a complete historical misnomer. And I think we have to recapture this spirit of adventure. That is what humanity is really so good at and bring it back to the workplace. So this, this idea of, and it's language that we don't often hear, which is why it's, quite captivating language to hear you speak this idea of connecting with and listening to one's heart and soul some might say well what place is there in in the work vicinity for the heart and soul and are we just now trying to get work to provide or fulfill that role that maybe religion once did or philosophy once did which is to scaffold our sense of meaning and understanding of what it what it is to be human but i think there is something interesting here in in the sense that if we can bring more of ourselves, the best aspects of ourselves, and maybe also the, the messy aspects um, of who we are to the work that we do, then surely it's going to be a much more enriching experience. And therefore, probably mm-hmm. the, the outcome of that is going to be more wholehearted and better. Um, how might you encourage people to find ways to listen to, to heart and soul or to be more adventurous? Are there certain practices that you've found to be helpful in that regard? Yeah, a whole load of things. I think it's important to have a group of people around you that you feel will encourage you in this direction. You know, I have groups of friends that keep me practical, inverted commas, but then also groups of friends that allow me to just, you know, wander in really unusual directions philosophically. (laughs) I think time spent in nature is really powerful. Mm. That's not necessary for everybody, but I do genuinely believe that our disconnection from nature has disconnected us in part from this wilder part of ourselves. Hmm. And uh, it's amazing how many people say, oh, I was on a walk and this came to mind, or I, this problem I've been wrestling with has been resolved, or I, you know, I found myself at the top of a mountain, etc." cetera. Hmm. Uh, I think connecting with those sort of haunting moments, you know, where those, we've all got those, a piece of music or sat by a babbling brook or whatever it might be that connects us into some bigger thing beyond ourselves, those moments... Are, are important for us mm. being parts of you know communities obviously if you have a if you have a spiritual worldview in investing in that you know whatever form that might take a lot of this stuff is not new you know it's that you often hear people quoting stuff in business books or on conferences 
that you know wisdom teachers said thousands of years ago and people have continued to just repeat over and over again and then a big wig says it like you know someone's invented it in the last five years mm. this stuff is there in the human cultural memory and i think we just need to get better at tapping into you know it's always interesting to ask what people are reading and what they've <laughs> read and the books that have still here 1500 2000 whatever it is years later are still here for good reason yeah and i think we can spend way too much time reading what's on the amazon bestseller list <laughs> and not nearly enough time reading well why is that book 2000 years later still still being read by people or the book or you know the thing that was read in written 1200 whatever still being read by people mm. read those things too yeah and connecting with those things the other thing for me is putting myself in to social situations that are totally alien. <laughs> I think we've become way too professionalized and narrow, particularly for people like me who spend time working in the city. You end up with a very strong specialism. You run in a very narrow lane, and you just don't know what's going on anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the world doesn't think like people who live in a borough in London and work in Canary Wharf. Just don't. I mean, you know, we're as unusual as anywhere else. Mm. So connecting with what people think in Accra in Ghana or Jakarta in Indonesia or whatever it might be, I think is really important. And that goes back to the humility point. You know, it makes you realise, okay, our worldview isn't the only worldview and maybe there's something wrong with ours too. That point around humility then, I think one of the things that's been interesting is we've seen responses on a country basis to the pandemic and lockdowns and public health, etc., mm-hmm. was the difference between leadership styles. And I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are around humility and leadership in terms of being a model for the change that you wish to espouse in your, in your organisation, in the culture. Um, what are some of the most important qualities do you think that a leader has to have? I think the first thing to remember is the board knows almost the least of everybody in the organisation. So you know, the mistake we make is when we think, oh, because I'm at the top, I can make all the best decisions because I have all the information. Almost the opposite is true. It's the people at the fringe or the people who are dealing with the issues that actually have a best idea and their finger on the pulse of what's going on. You know, we don't have a business as a force for good change movement on our hands because boards decided it was a good idea. <laughs> boards have been forced to the negotiating table, not the other way around. Hmm. And if you read all the material that comes out now, you know, it comes out of the large consulting firms or the, you know, the business schools. It's all based around the idea of how do you use the board to make change? And we do obviously need that, but it, it really conveniently forgets that the board has been the last group to get involved. Mm. But we're still addicted to this idea that we are placing the future into the hands of the people that didn't put their hand up. Mm. So being humble to think if you're at the top, okay, maybe we're not the best people to be making a decision. Now, we might have to be the people to make decisions, but who do we get in the room to listen to? Yes, I've been doing this for 30 years, but maybe 25 years of that experience is no longer relevant. There's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Hmm. People throw their hands up and think, oh, there's another scandal. How on earth did that person who's just so bright and has all those letters off his name go and do that? Yeah. Well, that's because they have all the knowledge in the world and no wisdom. <laughs> and if you look at the sort of traditional personal development stuff that is spewed out by corporates, it's all about knowledge retention, gaining new knowledge, doing courses. It's not the sort of things we've been talking about, which is, how do you build wisdom? How do you reconnect with yourself? That's because some of it is difficult to measure and difficult to source. And, okay, go and spend an afternoon in the woodland is not the sort of thing that 
the average person is willing to buy, mm. or the average corporate is willing to buy. So you could write, well, there are books and books about the importance of humility, but some of those are some of the issues, I would say. Mm. So what about you? What do you think? I think the humility piece is fundamental. I think the question that then that raises for me is what leaders or people in positions of power will be open to relearning ways in which to communicate, to receive feedback, to change tack. And I wonder, much in the same way that we're seeing a lot of pressure being applied on businesses by younger people to make change, and then a willingness of older people to go along once that dam has been burst. I wonder uh, if there are existing leaders who are older, more experienced, who can be convinced to change the way in which they've done their role for the last 20, 30 years. What, what do you think needs to be in play for that to be a possibility for people? What needs to happen or what can encourage leaders to change their tack? I mean, the slightly flippant answer is I think we spend way too much time worrying about how can we change other people and not enough time on how do I evolve myself? Because fundamentally, if we all focus on that, then we'd solve the problem. And there are people you're not going to change the mind of, and there are people who aren't going to catch up, and mm. there are people who you know, have reached the end of their careers and it's just not worth making the change. The other thing is you remember is we're asking a lot of people, if you're younger in your career mm. and you haven't built the thing you're now trying to unravel, there's no emotional attachment. This is the whole death and life thing again. You're not, you know, you're not killing something that you love. <laughs> and if you're if you're longer in the tooth, and you're now being told by the system, not only have you caused a problem uh, and built a system that has been extremely damaging, but there was a better way of doing it that potentially meant more. For for the whole, not less. It wasn't as simple as a cost. It wasn't a simple cost exchange. But also, you're never going to get that time back with your family. Oof. You chose to sit at work and just keep doing the status quo, even though you, some part of you perhaps deep down felt this doesn't quite feel right. You carried on going. You didn't put your hand up. That can be quite difficult, you know, late on to then be told by someone who's in their early 30s, we are actually finding a way to do both. Mm -hmm. I can see my family and do the job you did and save the planet at the same time. That is quite a big bitter pill to swallow. Mm. We have to remember that there's a huge amount of emotion tied up in all these things, which is why the data alone is not enough, and which is why being willing as a person to engage with, do you know what, maybe we made a mistake and I paid a pretty heavy price for it, and stepping into that pain, recognizing it. That's not true for everybody, but I have seen this crop up you know, in committees of listed companies where people are reluctant to, you know, open the doors to new things. And you can tell this is what's partly what's going on behind the scenes. Mm. You know, it's, it's, oh my goodness, like, what did we do? And I can't get the time back. God, it makes my heart really hurt hearing that actually, because that is a hard, hard thing to hear. Yeah, I think this, I think it's real. And I think, I think this is partly because we're very, very focused on the environmental cost of the status quo. And rightly so, you know, we do need to rectify the problems and we do need to change our ways. But the social cost of it has been huge as well. You know, we're very disconnected. We're very lonely. Mental health crisis is rampant. You know, huge rates of divorce, um, a lot of sickness through stress, poor life expectancy in certain industries. We have very, very serious social problems that are also partly you know, a consequence of the way we've designed how we work together. 
Mm. And people ask me why I, you know, I'm passionate about the land and my parents have a small farm. And so, you know, the environmental thing is really, really matters to me too. But I've chosen to focus more on the people. And for me, it's because I grieve over the people issue, like Greenpeace grieves over the whales. I think that cost is very real too. And part of the first stage is accepting and recognizing what have we done. Because mm. until you do that, it's very difficult to really seriously and authentically build the new. Mm. One of the benefits, of course, is that people do retire. So, you know, a lot of the people that may have to deal with that, you know, are potentially are leaving anyway. And um, perhaps you could argue not their problem anymore. But nevertheless, you know, it's still there. Again, go back to the humility thing. It's not a case of pointing the finger and saying, look what you did, I wouldn't have done that. I think we all, we all have to be willing to recognize that we may have done it too. Mm. You know, we, that perhaps most of us are on this train, not just simply out of courage, but because other people made it possible for us to do that. The vast majority of people involved in this are doing it because somebody went before them. That includes me. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't just point the finger and say, you know, you bad, me good. I think that's way too simple and too judgmental and, and that's not a humble way to approach it. Mm. And I think also it's probably not the most integrative way to, to approach it. I know that in therapeutic practices, a lot of the, the healing process comes from turning to look at the hurt and the grief and the loss mm. and the rage and the sorrow and all of the things that we prefer to turn away from, to give them voice and then to find a way to to relate to them and to converse with them until we can learn what's there and integrate that into who we are as opposed to chop it off or blame it for some reason or whatever it is. Do you happen to know of any kind of therapeutic equivalent for businesses and people in businesses, people listening to this thinking, wow, you've really touched on something there. How could I begin to start creating a space or a process that allows us to look at the things that we're in pain over so that we can find a new way together to move forward sadly not i mean I, i'm sure that there are people out there who have it and i'm in the process of working towards this so you know, i'm a big believer in the power of small groups and small group dialogue uh, pretty much every you know memorable social change movement began with a small group of people who said no or you know said yes to the new thing so I think I think being in small group dialogues with people where you can be really vulnerable, open, transparent, hold one another accountable, um, ask ask probing questions, be willing to receive that, sit and listen, um, facilitate that kind of discussion. I think is really really important. And you know, I've started writing a whole lot of materials to su support that, uh, which I call Tailu T E Y L U, which is Cornish for family. Hmm. And my work outside of Shawmount, which is called the Great Reawakening, this is what this is all heading towards: this idea of how do we how do we keep pushing on with some of these discussions that people might be having over coffee or by themselves with their friends, but not really having in a professional space. Mm. Um, and so the idea is, eventually, someone asks a question like the one you just did. The answer is, yeah, look, and here, go to our resource centre and here's some ideas. Um, but but a bit like with a purpose thing, I don't think you're going to find it in the business space. Hmm. It, it did it it took it took businesses going beyond the business sphere and looking to the arts looking to philosophy looking to religion looking to sport looking to conservation to really start to find new ways through the problem when businesses were only looking at businesses and asking what are you doing 
what course are you taking? What are you recommending to your people? We were going absolutely nowhere. Hmm. So that's been my first encouragement would be if you're a business asking this question, I wouldn't default looking to other businesses for the answer. Hmm. You, you need to look a bit like you've just, you know, you've picked up on therapy. Look to other disciplines. I know therapy is a, you know, runs a business, but you know what I mean? Hmm. Um, look to other disciplines for good ideas, I think. Again, back to the humility piece, you know, we, we've turned business into the sort of pinnacle of good ideas, and that is far from the truth. Hmm. In terms of other ways in which we can create change, so we've touched a bit on leadership, we've touched on humility, we've touched on looking outside of the sphere of business to create change, the power of small groups. Hmm. You also sit on the investment committee for the UK's leading impact investment funds. And I'd love to know if you're seeing any changes or growing interest in this in this kind of investing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, very much so. The numbers uh, become pretty mind-boggling now. I mean, <laughs> I think one of the challenges we have is a merging of mainstream investing that is changing its investment philosophy towards something that is more holistic. <laughs> and the sort of impact investing social enterprise space, which was really the first outlet for people who wanted to do something different, but the mainstream wouldn't listen. There was, you know, this is this is partly why I'm involved. My this is what my parents did during the sort of eighties, nineties, noughties. You know, they were trying to um, drive this conversation in the city and use their means, not just to sort of use ethical screening, but how do we use investment potential to sort of create positive change mm. the only option was to do something new because nobody else was willing to engage so I, I think there's a lot of coming together and there's confusion in the middle about you know where the boundaries are and how that works and some you know there are certainly businesses that are starting to fall between the cracks that are too mainstream for the impact funds but mm. still doing good and too impact for the mainstream funds and you know so but yes and all the big money managers that make a lot of noise about it but don't really do very much <laughs> also just basically put wind in the sails of the movement they created a rod for their own back you know they've sort of fueled the momentum um unwittingly or otherwise yeah it's, it's a really exciting time and, and <laughs> i think we have to move the capital markets for us to go past the point of no return for it to become really ingrained in the system because basically that's the system we built that the real economy mm. works for financial services not the other way around and we need to turn that on its head a bit yeah and so for for people who are listening to this who are thinking on whatever scale that they want to redesign their business models or maybe assess them in a different way to better align with their values to create a more equitable sustainable and regenerative system what one or two resources have you come across that you found valuable that you would suggest they explore sure i mean well the b corp b impact assessment that we use to review all the people who want to become a b corp is an open free public resource and it's really user-friendly it's fun to engage with and it's it's you know intentionally designed so that anybody can just open an account and just start ticking off positive ideas or investigating you know <laughs> what are the, the b corps of the world doing and you know you asked earlier about how do we change people that sort of thing there's a reason unfortunately why the same the same names like Patagonia mm. and so on always come up is because there are so few examples of that kind of scale. But there's these sorts of resources, you know, are listening to what those companies are doing. We have get a huge amount of user feedback. As I said, there's three and a half thousand B Corps, but over a hundred thousand organizations use the B Impact Assessment just to think. 
not not even necessarily to apply. You don't have to be applying to use the assessment, and you don't even have to be a business to use the assessment. You have to be whilst you have to be a business to be a B Corp. You could be government department and use the assessment tool just to for a sort of creative list of ideas. And it molds to your size and your sector. So it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, four person outfit making vegan leather goods or something, mm-hmm. right through to, you know, multinational doing all sorts of other things that, you know, like a mining company or something and everything in between. So it, it doesn't matter how good or bad you think your business is or how big it is or what sector it's in, that's a great resource. And I think it's the best one. Brilliant. That's super useful because that's something very tangible that we can all go ahead and, and explore. And that gives immediate suggestions on how to change what we're doing. Yeah, definitely. But the most important thing is to talk. Before you start using resources and things, my best piece of advice is just sit down with your team and talk about it. You know, who do we want to be as a business? Who do we want to be as people? Why do this? Mm. And have the confidence to believe that, you know, as a group of people, you're sufficient to answer the question. Don't believe that there's all these people out there like me who've got this sorted and we've worked it all out. And if only you knew the blanks that we could fill in for you. You know, we're all just trying our best um, by trying things. And yes, there is established wisdom on certain things and, you know, growing body of knowledge. But we're very, very early on in this in this shift. And we've got a long way to go. So I really would encourage anybody listening to this or reading whatever it is you put together just to have the confidence to have a go mm. and that your your humanity and the sort of integrity and the dignity that you seek in terms of what does it mean to run a meaningful business will answer a lot of the questions for you mm. and you'll find what you need. Brilliant. I like the idea of starting with those questions and turning that inwards as well. Mm. There's another kind of connected question, which is, I guess it, it connects with our competing desires because obviously we're in business to make money and also we want to be involved in business that at the very least doesn't damage others and at the best add something so when we have these competing desires whether it's for profit or for purpose or both or for short-term pleasure versus long-term benefit are there techniques that you found useful in helping to bridge that gap to helping us decide well okay um it might be an example of chocolate I really want some chocolate, but instead of buying something wrapped in plastic, I want to go to my local store and get something that I can take away in a reusable bag. (laughs) So I get pleasure and purpose, kind of both of those needs met in a very sort of simple example. Do you find that there are other ways of bridging those maybe competing or conflicting desires? I think think firstly to go easy on oneself. Mm -hmm. The world is never going to be perfect. There's always a cost. Um, There's no such thing as a perfect choice, Mm -hmm. really. and you know, I drive a diesel car, my house is heated by oil because of where we live. And yeah, I have an electric one too, but I still eat meat and friends with lots of farmers. You know, I'm sure there'll be people listening here who think well, all those things are bad choices, but mm. maybe I A, have more to learn, B, some of the things I'd like to do just aren't possible. You can't use that as an excuse, but I think mm. you can certainly, you know, what we don't want to end up is sort of with mass communal anxiety over every single choice we make i think that i would use two metaphors as well for the competing thing because you sort of are kind of asked two questions you ask the question about (laughs) how do we deal with those competing choices we have to make but also the idea of business being in competition Mm. the two metaphors i lean on are the first of which is to see business as a form of rivalry rather than dog eat dog so if you think of kind of federer and djokovic or something you know, 
they're not literally trying to wipe one another off the court. <laughs> they believe that they're better tennis players for the competition and they can play against one another, they can train with one another, they can and every now and again they can compete with one another properly to try and see who wins something. But you know, they both have a desire to honor the game, improve the game, push the boundaries, do new things, as in addition to, you know, how how good can I be? Mm. Um that's a bit like that in our B Corp movement. You know, there's an awful lot of collaboration, but there's also a lot of industry competitors, but I prefer to see them as rivals. Mm. And the second thing is in nature, you know, is the lion competing with the, the springbok? No, it's just the ecosystem is just, you know, different companies have different roles to play and nature is, is not so much in competition with itself. It's, it's just constantly shifting. Mm. And I think, you know, that we need to see business and the community of business that we're in is more like that, more like an organic ecosystem that is constantly shifting. And just being comfortable with the things that, you know, not every business is going to survive. You know, we're not we're not promising a landscape where if you do this, you know, the business will thrive uh, and it will never end. That's just fundamentally not going to be true. Businesses will fail on this new landscape just as they did in the old. And looking now to the future, what do you anticipate or imagine the future of work will look like? Sure. Um, well, you tell me what you think and then we'll... Take it from there. Yeah. I think um, it's going to be a hybrid of what we've previously had and what we're starting to realise is possible now. And I'm thinking of that across various different domains. So structurally, uh, we're not just going to have simple hierarchies, although we'll still need some sort of hierarchical structure, but maybe it'll look a bit flatter. Um, I think from an organisational and cultural perspective, people might be more intentional in terms of how they design cultures, what to look for, how they use values and principles to orient that. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be an interesting interplay of the hybrid workplace between physical and virtual presence. So creating teams from around the world that can work remotely, but then come together to create meaningful experiences so that that, that sense of community and vision can thrive, because obviously it's, it becomes a bit trickier to do that if it's only virtual. And then in terms of things like profit and purpose, as we've seen also in the finance sector, that this idea of responsible investing, or shouldn't investing be responsible because otherwise we're responsible for the decline of the world and then no investment is going to be possible. So I think there's also that kind of change in the ways in which we seem what norms should exist based on the health of the planet and the health of business as a result yeah wonderful that sounds like a good place to go and work oh. <laughs> so yeah i i agree with all that i think um i think we're heading in all those sorts of directions plus i think there's you know no doubt some wonderful unknowns that are mm. you know yet to show up and the reality is, is living in the living and working in the world you've described on the ground in 10 15 years time if that was to become the norm hmm. it'd be a very very different social experience yeah. and and it would totally upend a lot of social norms that go well beyond the workplace because this is a systemic shift it's not just how do we redesign the business down the road mm. and i don't think we can probably imagine just how deep and far this could run mm. and you know when you look back at the way that society reorganizes itself every now and again over periods of time in history it was probably impossible for feudal england to imagine what life is like today yeah yeah under a bureaucracy and um you know living with the sort of the meritocratic process we live even if you started to see the early shift in that you probably wouldn't really have understood 
what would that eventually look like? And I think, you know, I think that's what we're at now is like, you know, don't really know some of what that will do. And also, what problems would it bring? Yeah. As I say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think that's true a lot of the time. And that's the sort of thing that keeps me awake is, and again, that's the humble piece. What are we unleashing that we don't know is there? And that, that shouldn't hold us back. I think we should keep going, you know, as fast as we can. But we need to be realistic about watching out for unintended consequences. And also remembering that, you know, a lot of this discussion we ha- we're having is is only held mostly in certain parts of the world and certain amongst certain people groups. Mm. So we need to sort of really open open it up and this stuff needs to be as relevant to the person pulling the Extinction Rebellion off the top of the tube as it is the Extinction Rebellion. We're only going to get there if everybody's involved. Mm-hmm. If you had to choose one thing that you felt was absolutely vital to the long-term success of a business in the future, what would it be? High-quality relationships, trust, basically. If you can't trust that you, you know, that you are seriously in it for one another and for the bigger purpose, you're always going to run aground in some way. Mm-hmm. Almost all problems stem from, you know, a lack of willingness to trust that we care for one another and the greater good that we're in, we're in pursuit of. Mm. So maybe building from that, what kind of world do you want to build? I think we need to restore our faith in ourselves and one another in the commons so to speak you know whether that's the common good the land hmm. um you know it's a really deep question and that's a question that i think people have wrestled with forever and will wrestle i will always be answering that question basically and this again sound maybe it sounds it's too esoteric but i really do think love wins hmm. If you think back to when it was, it was around Easter weekend, wasn't it, when sort of lockdown happened and you know people started clapping to the NHS and the government policies were about protecting the old and protecting the NHS. I remember thinking, like, well, basically the whole nation is currently engaged in an act of love. Hmm. You know, we were all doing things not for ourselves. It was like pray for Boris on the front of the sun and there were people getting clapped, <laughs> people getting clapped out of the NHS and... Um, you know, we, everyone was on their doorsteps and, you know, the whole point of the process was to protect people that may have died in the next six to 12 months anyway. And I think that changes a nation. I, at the moment, I think we're too, we're, you know, we're under the cloud and we're in the middle of it and we can't see it. But I think love is more powerful than violence. And I don't think that you can unleash that on a nation and not change it. So that's my hope for the future is that Actually, all this stuff, you know, the purpose thing, the conscientious business, compassionate, you know, capitalism, whatever it might be, whatever you want to call it, fundamentally, it's all an act of love. It's an act of love towards your fellow human beings, an act of love towards nature, it's an act of love towards family, towards your colleague. How can that not change individuals and a community? Mm. So, you know, what one thing can you do towards that? (sighs) Go and find out what love means. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the themes we explored, please visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you've enjoyed the series, please do share it with your friends and give it a rating or review. And for more insights and insider tips, you can join my newsletter as well. 
My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.